Welcome to Startup Dads, a podcast about the highs and lows of building a business and raising a family at the same time. For more information about the topics we cover on the podcast and other Startup Dads related content, you can follow us on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod. I'm Amrit, co-founder of Hyper Exponential, a tech startup that I co-founded in 2017. It's grown from a two-person team working out of my kitchen to a profitable business with several large clients and more than 20 team members across London and Europe. I'm also dad to Evie, my first child, who was born last December. Welcome to this week's episode of Startup Dads. I'm delighted to welcome David Grimm on the show. Hi, David. Hello, Amrit. How are you? I'm really well, thanks. I'm far too hot. Uh, and I will definitely be shouting at our producers afterwards for making me close the windows, but I shouldn't complain. I feel like this is that time of year where Brits, we have three days of hot weather and we all complain about it's too hot. Yeah, the uh, national sport. Yeah, exactly. And I'm doing it on a podcast. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, to kick off, can you talk to us a little bit about your startup journey and how you became a startup dad? When I first finished university, I went to China for a year to teach as a kind of um, bit of a gap year. What am I going to do with my life? I just got married, so I finished university, married the girl I met on the first day at university. I married her three weeks after we finished university. Uh, and we went to China for a year to teach. It was great fun. And we went as part of an organization that sent professionals to China to kind of help in development projects. And I met a guy who wanted to help farmers in China who were producing dairy, but subject to massive fluctuations in the dairy market. And I thought he was crazy. I came back to the UK and I got involved in management consulting and I went to work for a business consultancy called Detica and uh, learned some of the core skills of kind of how you set up businesses and run businesses. So it was really interesting. Uh, but this was always on my mind that this guy wanted to start this crazy idea in China. And so I got in touch and said, look, I'd happy to help. If any of the skills that I'm learning now are useful for you, then, you know, let me, let me help you out. And he said, well, what I really want is to want to help me fundraise and actually get this idea off the ground. So being in the UK, I got in touch with some business angel groups and started sort of pitching this idea and got a bit of funding for the business. And then I thought, I'm never going to get this opportunity again. Why don't I go and do that? So I quit my, my job in London and we moved out to, uh, to Taiyuan in China to run this business. I quit my job sort of end of 2008, uh, right in the middle of the kind of financial crisis. I remember that someone wrote a headline in the Evening Standard or a little headline as, as part of the business section in the Evening Standard, Grimm goes to follow his fairy tale. Uh, which, and then it was basically an article about saying how silly I was to leave a really stable job in the middle of a financial crisis to go and do something that was completely bonkers. But uh, nevertheless, went out there. And the idea was these were farmers in a very uh, remote rural area part of China. Um, China didn't have good cold chain transportation. So their milk, often they couldn't sell it locally for a very good price and they'd end up throwing it away. These were guys living on just the absolute kind of poverty line. And this chap that I'd met had had the brainwave, well, look, you can transport cheese uh, and you can transport other dairy products, so let's make it into cheese and go and sell it in the big cities where there's access to people with disposable income. And so we did that. Uh, and we had kind of 50 local farmers feeding into a farmhouse where we trained up a load of people from the local villages to come and, and make cheese, got a load of equipment imported from Holland and other places, often sort of begging and borrowing uh, from large corporations and had this amazing business where we would take this dairy product and, and go and sell it in, in Beijing and Shanghai. And my job was to kind of go and expand the market, get it into the supermarkets out there uh, and, and build the distribution channels. That's wild. Um, it sounds like you went out to China with a view of doing the kind of teach English as a foreign language 
So when did the startup bug bite you then? Because it sounds like you talk to this guy and often there's a formative experience, a conversation that sets something going with lots of startup people. I don't know what your thoughts are there. Well, I think for me, I, I had a job to come back to in a big business consultancy and my life was kind of already being panned out in the kind of standard graduate fashion. But my mind was like, I want to do something that helps people. And this was just such an obvious way that you could go and do something that would help people. You could build a sustainable model that could help people out of poverty, help people pay medical bills and school bills and all sorts of things that uh, it just seemed like the natural thing. And I was learning all these skills as part of a, of a consultancy in the UK. And those grad training programs are amazing. You get an awful lot of input. And so just the idea of being able to marry the two things together was in such a raw way was just too exciting to pass up. And then what happened? Uh, well, so it was all going brilliantly. And we had some good angel investors from, from Europe and things were going excellently. And then the Chinese government decided to shut down all small dairy firms, which was quite frustrating. So they had a, an issue with the milk supply. There were some middlemen in particular who were putting a chemical called melamine into the milk supply in China in order to allow them to water it down. Uh, unfortunately, that had some very, very bad consequences. Nothing to do with us. Like, we didn't use the middlemen. We had our milk brought to us directly from the farms. We, we sold directly to the supermarket. It was never an issue. But after a long kind of investigation, the Chinese government decided that they would be able to regulate the market if there were only a few big companies. And so they came and, and basically made it impossible for small companies to continue. So that was a deeply saddening and frustrating moment uh, as we had a future sort of ripped out of our hands. I remember I'd written like a board pack, you know, only a month or so before with, you know, we've broken even now, we've got all these huge plans, this is how we're going to kind of scale up at this point. And then just to have it all kind of fairly, <laughs> fairly quickly sort of pulled from under our feet was, um, was deeply saddening. And then, you know, the big thing for me is we had all these people who relied on us. And so we had people who were massively on the poverty line and they were suddenly being able to pay their medical bills and school bills and all these other things and we were going to say to them sorry you don't have a job anymore and that was an extremely hard thing to do fortunately through a bit of hard work they were found jobs in all of the local economies so we managed to find everyone who had benefited from from what we were doing a job elsewhere uh, i like to think some of that was because they'd learned some skill sets by working with us but yeah so that was a, a pretty pretty disheartening time. And so then I had to think about what I was doing next. Uh, and by this time, my first daughter was, was on the way. We were living in China and we had, after a fairly, fairly long time of hoping and trying, uh, eventually we'd gotten pregnant and uh, all very exciting. It's like, oh, what am I bringing this, my daughter into? I'm an unemployed guy living <laughs> in the middle of China. What, what's, you know, what, is this CV any good? Do people, do people think starting a dairy firm in China is a, is a sensible career move? Um, so I had to fail a few sleepless nights on that one. And by chance, one of the chaps who I've been talking to a lot about funding the business was uh, himself running a, a venture fund in, in the UK, so running Spark Ventures. And so I actually rang him up to say, I'm thinking of doing some qualifications. Which of these are the best qualifications to do? And he said, well, these all look great, but do you want to come and work for me? <laughs> and so by, by what feels like an awful lot of good luck, um, but probably demonstrates the value of building a strong network, I found myself starting a career in venture capital. So did having a kid shift your perspective? Would you have done a, been tempted to do another startup? Did you have the bug in that way? Did it your risk appetite change when your first one was born? It's a good question. Yeah, yeah, actually, it's probably true. I've never thought about it like that. But yes, it's probably true that I was less willing 
to survive and more focused on actually I need to now provide. Yes. Um, and you know, we could have survived in lots of different ways, staying in China or coming back to the UK, but actually it became important to have some stability going forward. And I'd learned a very harsh lesson about stability in startups. <laughs> I didn't consciously think I'm never going to do startups again, or now I want to move to the move to the funding side. But the opportunity came up, and it certainly fitted the stage of life that I was at. You know, I've got a lot of respect for founders who jump into the startup world after being dads, because Evie was born my daughter after HX had got to a stage where I was like, okay, you know, nothing's ever guaranteed, but we've made it through kind of the structural phases where the business, you know, looks like it's going to be, it's got a solid platform, but it's definitely the sort of thing, as you rightly say, your, your priorities shift and change as you have kids. And that's for sure. It's an interesting point you bring up because that's sort of a problem with the ecosystem in that there is an enormous amount of risk built into being a startup founder. If you look at the, the founders that VCs fund, you know, I'm conscious of this, when I look at the number of people come through our door and, and pitch, it's heavily skewed towards people who have some, some way of mitigating the risk already, right? It's quite rare, I think, that we have founders who, if it all goes wrong, like they, you know, they're in serious financial difficulties, you know, a lot of them have a safety net. And I think we as, as VCs, as a community, need to think a bit harder about helping those who haven't got a safety net still get access to, to the world and, and get on with it. I'm not saying there aren't founders who do that, but it's certainly heavily skewed towards founders who've got a bit of a safety net in the first place. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I, I really like a quote, I'm sure you know, uh, Paul Graham, uh, he talks about very few startups actually fail because people run out of money. I mean, they do, but you know, his general, his perspective is that lots of startups actually fail because founders give up because um, there are lots of ways that you can uh, keep going. It's whether you want to or not keep going. I mean, I think it sounds like the experience where the government shuts down the fundamental industry. I think that's probably a, a legitimate reason why business kind of runs into a brick wall. But there are lots of other reasons where, you know, people, uh, for whatever reason, go, you know what, I just can't keep keep going. And I think you're absolutely right uh, uh, that it's a long-term game building a really, really impactful business and helping people deal with the downs and mitigate the risk in different ways. It's a really interesting point. So I suppose I'd like to pick up on that a little because, you know, obviously you're on the other side of the table now. You must have learned so much from that because that's definitely one of my favourite founder stories, you know, to start <laughs> off by going to chi rural China uh, <laughs> and going to build a business there. Has that influenced, I don't know, consciously or subconsciously, the way you kind of look at founders and potential portfolio companies when they're coming in to assess them? Because, you know, you have a really good understanding now of what, you know, the brick walls could be. I suppose that's probably an important skill in a VC. Yeah, I think when you're assessing them, one of the things you're really looking for is why are they doing this? Like, what's the real driving, motivating factor? And very, very rarely is it actually, you know, I want to get really rich. Although that can be a very positive side effect of building a, building a great company. Most of the great successful founders that I've worked with, they want to achieve a personal vision or they want to, they want to make an impact in, in the way on the world that being a startup founder allows them to do that perhaps they wouldn't find another way. And so that's a really important thing to look for because they're much less likely to give up if it's linked to something intrinsically important to them. I think you had Tom Hooper on a few weeks back and uh, you know, he is passionate about more people accessing one-to-one -one education and, and getting a better experience for learning maths. And my goodness, that business has been on you know, a real journey and you know, he's been completely dedicated to it. And I'm confident that there's a lot of that is because he really believes in what he's doing. It's nothing to do with the, the financial outcome that he, that he could well benefit from anyway. 
I absolutely agree with that. And it resonates very strongly personally with me. I always find it very interesting because I've got lots of friends who are outside the startup world and they see money being raised and valuations and all these sorts of things. And I think often they don't realize that, you know, I can't buy anything with HX shares, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, there's kind of an interesting dichotomy. Like, A, you know, your investment is, I know the world is going wild with secondaries and all sorts of things going on in the world now. But, you know, broadly, you can't buy anything with your shares. And there's actually a secondly kind of interesting opposite effect that if you build, particularly in the market that's so very startup friendly at the moment, you build even a moderately successful business, actually it stops being about the money relatively early, right? I'm not suggesting that, as I said, I can't buy anything with the shares, but if you look at paper wealth of successful businesses, there's no way for most of these people that actually they're doing it for the money after series B, right? You know, they're doing it for, for different motivations. And so that's really, it's, it's good to hear. Great stuff. So I suppose maybe pivoting a little bit. So, you know, you currently look after the UCL Technology Fund. So it looks like you've got a focus on life and physical sciences. And you've also served on a board of an edtech firm. So I suppose what I'm really interested in, because it picks up on the theme that you opened with, is how much do you find yourself adopting this lens of, you know, how does this company actually make the world a better place? Particularly now you've had kids, I suppose. Yeah, well, absolutely. I think, you know, it's something that the VC industry is very quickly kind of catching up on, you know, You'll often hear VCs say, well, our job is to make returns. But um, I think it's very quickly becoming apparent that we have a, a wide responsibility to society. And actually, all the data suggests that those that take their wider responsibility seriously make better returns anyway. So you might argue it's not all altruistic. But you know, at Albion, uh, where I work, um, which manages the UCL Technology Fund, we're now making sure that ESG is absolutely the forefront of every investment decision and all of our input to boards so it is absolutely critical i think not just from a because it's it makes sure all our lps are happy and fits in with a good reputational thing for our fund to do but because you know we are creating the technology of the future we are having a huge impact the stuff that we invest in the founders that we back will change the world um, and so we've got to be really cognizant about how that world is changing and so yeah it's become absolutely the forefront of what we we're doing i was on a board yesterday where we were for the first time going through in detail which of the metrics we really care about from an ESG perspective. You know, are we diverse as we could be? You know, are we thinking about, you know, how, what the environmental impact of the whole business is, not just, you know, the, the product? Uh, yeah, I think you're going to see, you know, a stronger focus from the entire investment community. I think I've not come across a founder who said, oh, well, I don't want to focus on that. Everyone is aligned that, you know, I think it certainly seems like the last two or three years has been a huge wake-up call. It's no longer sort of unusual to care about the environment <laughs> uh, you know, with every aspect of what you do in your job. Um, and so, you know, we've all got to start getting that right very quickly. I, I suppose on that note, how do you help your founders prioritise and deal with those sorts of issues? Because, you know, you're absolutely right. I think you're, you're never going to see a founder who says environment, uh, diversity, corporate governance, all of that are really important. But it, it can be quite hard, actually, when you've got so many things going on, build a framework to make sure you embed it in a really kind of strong way? Yeah, so, um, well, firstly, is to make sure they've got the time and space to speak about it. So you've got to say, look, at the board meetings, like, I want to speak about this. I don't feel like, you know, I'll be sitting there thinking, oh, you're wasting my time. I want you to tell me about your, your traction and your retention and all the, the really key things to me. You know, the first thing is be absolutely clear. Look, I want to have a you know, part of your board where we talk about this and it's going to be really, it's going to be a bit I'm really engaged in. And the second thing is, you know, more and more providing toolkits, making their life easy, 
Um, you know, we've got a, our own sustainability workshop coming up at Albion for all of our portfolio, which is to get everyone in and say, look, um, this is how you can do it simply. This is best practice. This is how to implement it. So, you know, you can you can do it with a minimal impact on you know, your time because that's super valuable as a founder. But you can experience all the benefits of building a more diverse organization, you know, with better structures in place, better policies in place. So, yeah, it's both making sure they feel they're empowered to speak about it and giving them the tools and the the ability to, to do it without it taking massive amounts away from the sort of core focus of the business. Yeah, it's awesome to hear. I think one of the things that I've learned with our investors who are fantastic is when your investors, sometimes, you you know, as a founder, as you rightly said, you can feel like, oh, I'm not sure I want to talk about these things because they're not the obvious metrics I think are important. Um, but it can be really liberating when you have an investor, you know, who say, actually, no, let's put these on the table because it gives you the space and the comfort to do it. And, you know, that um, comes across even, you know, beyond uh, ESG, but even things like mental health, burnout, energy levels. If, you know, if you've got investors who are like, oh, we want to check in on you, like, actually, that's important to us. It makes a massive difference. So it all goes into a big pot, I think, which, you know, drives better outcomes in the long term. Yeah, absolutely. I think ensuring that you have an empathetic investor, someone who's going to care about your own mental health, the struggles you're going through, I'm always cognizant there are times when things are going wrong for companies and they may have to reduce headcount. And, you know, I have these conversations with, with founders where, you know, I'm cognizant that I could be coming across as very cold in this. Like, look, you don't have the runway. You've got to restructure and your headcount is too high, right? I know from really bitter personal experience what it is to lay people off. Uh, and <laughs> in a situation which is probably far worse than, <laughs> uh, than most people are being laid off to in the UK, and so you know, I'm aware of all of the trauma that the founder is going through in that. They've made commitments to people. They've, you know, people have re-engineered their lives to follow that founder. And then that founder might be turning around saying, sorry, right now we just it doesn't work for us. Um, that's a really horrible thing to go through. Um, and so being able to talk with your investors and have the conversations about how it's affecting you as well as about how it's affecting the company is absolutely critical. Um, and just getting founders to open up about their mental health to their investors and to people on their board, you know, I really hope and I'm working hard with all of my founders so they feel like that is something that they can bring up. You know, other investors make space for mental health conversations at board level and been really surprised at how, how much founders have been willing to open up and how that's guided the discussion on where the company needs to go in the next three, six months and been a really important part of of you ever know, business developing and so something that I've taken away and have started to sort of implement across my own portfolio is just to talk a bit more openly about mental health issues with my founders and say look you know <laughs> we all have them we're all struggling with them don't don't feel like it's a bad thing to bring it up we can help um, and so yeah I'm hoping that's becoming a more common thing in VCT. That's awesome awesome to hear. So maybe switching us a little bit more onto the dad side of things so first child while you were in uh, rural China now you're home. I think you've got two kids. Two now, yeah. So I have Izzy, who's who's nine. She was born in China. And I have Chloe, who's uh, six. Uh, she was born on the Wirral, less exotic. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So I suppose, you know, um, definitely, as you say, slightly different early stages of life and, and possibly a little bit too early to bring into the, any of your portfolio companies. Um, but I'm interested to know how you frame what you do with your kids you know, because I think there are lots of people when they're kids, they go, I, I want to be a rally driver or a rock star. 
But um, being an investor in world-changing businesses is something that's um, probably slightly more difficult to explain to young kids. My, my daughter's 19 months, and quite frankly, she doesn't, have it, doesn't really care what I do. But I'm interested to know how you frame it and explain what you do to your kids. Yeah, I guess I'm fortunate in that because a lot of my investing is into university sort of technology, the way that I can frame it and the way that they understand is that there's some people, in, some people who are inventing incredible new technologies that, you know, when they grow up are going to be part of their lives, but they need help to get them going and they, you know, they need to employ people. And I, that my job is to help them find those people, get going, build their company and get their technology off the ground. You know, my nine-year-old, I think, is can kind of get those concepts pretty well. So he understands that, you know, someone needs, People need money to start businesses. You know, they need to pay their first employees. And so, yeah, I think it's nice to be able to talk about the technologies that I invest in. And some of them are kind of relevant to, to their lives. So Isabel, for instance, was one of the first customers for one of Tom's education products. So uh, they get to experience a little bit of what I do through those interactions, which is great. I think that is absolutely great. And I think, you know, we talk about this. It comes up on the show actually quite a lot about how you know startup dads want their kids to see them and see what they do and see what they enable because you know whatever side of the table you sit on working in the startup ecosystem you know you're trying to make the world a better place in some way shape or form as you alluded to earlier on there are not many founders who go into this because they aspire after private jets or anything like that that's the side effect that you may or may not achieve but if you can leave a little dent in the world uh, that's what really makes you uh, makes you tick. So I suppose, you know, slightly related question, but something I'm always in- interested in is, is how has your journey, you know, working with startups influenced your parenting, particularly if you're working with potentially, you know, businesses who are, you know, going to make a better world for your kids? So I think one of the nice things about my job is I get to explore lots of new things and ask just loads and loads of questions about new technologies, new sciences. I'm very broad, right? So I do everything that's deep tech at UCL. And so that can be everything from a hardware investment to a uh, to a software investment to a med tech investment. So quite often, I'm the least well-educated person in a room, particularly on any given subject. And so I, uh, I have to ask a lot of questions. And it's really, really brought home to me how asking questions is fundamental to kind of like us growing as a as individuals. And if you've got kids, I guess yours is a little young at the moment to, to experiencing this, but they ask an awful lot of questions. And I'm really keen to take every single question that my children ask me really seriously. Like it's so easy to kind of fob them off with a, you know, the simplest answer possible. I think, oh, I've, I've satisfied their question. They've left me alone. But each question is a super opportunity to sit down with them and say, okay, well, this is how this works, but then you have to think about how, how everything else works around it. And so my job allows me to have a super inquisitive nature and ask lots of questions. Um, and you know, that's, that's a huge benefit. And I, I think I've grown and learned as a person from it. And you know, I want to be a, a really conscientious question answerer for my children. Um, because I want them to, I want them to enjoy exploring their curiosity, not feel like they're shut down the moment they kind of ask the second question. <laughs> I, I think that's an absolutely awesome answer, and I think you know, I'm sure you see this uh, because I've certainly seen it in you know the top performers at HX or people I've worked with in my life is that curiosity is actually often just a really great indicator of performance, right? People who are genuinely curious and interested and want to know why and want to know how things work and why they are the way they are, you know, that's often a really powerfully predictive kind of character trait. And if you can foment that, if you can kind of create that in your kids or or encourage it, I think it's just a great life skill uh, to encourage, actually. 
Well, I think, and the other thing is, I think sometimes we we feel we can't ask questions because it might expose a level of ignorance or that we you know that we don't understand something. And uh, you know, very early in my VC career, I realised that there are very few questions that are really stupid. And very often you'd be sitting in a room with a lot of bright people and you'd be thinking, I don't quite get this. And when I first started, I would try to try to hide my ignorance and just sort of nod along. And then you start asking the really stupid questions and you realize no one else really got it in the room either. And they're all nodding along. And so asking the stupid question is actually often the really clever thing to do. And it kind of opened up conversations and building in a bit of humility so that you feel like you, you're not too concerned about your own reputation by asking questions, I think is really important alongside it. Um, not knowing something is not an indicator of you know low intellect. It just means you don't know that particular thing. Uh, I was, <laughs> I was talking to my daughter a few weeks back. She came home I was a little, well, a little bit longer than that, just around Easter time. Um, so my, she would have been five then, Chloe. She came home and she, uh, she'd been thinking about something for a while. She came home and said, Dad, Dad um, what do they do with Jesus's head? I said, well, what do you mean? Well, my teacher told me they put Jesus's body in the tomb. But where was, why did they take his head away? And I had to go, oh, okay, right. So yeah, often when people are alive, when, we, when people are living organisms, we tend to talk about their body and their head, right? Mm. But once they're dead, we don't, you know, like, yeah. and then and there are lots of other re- ways we use body, like body of water. So you need, and then it opens up a whole load of things to talk about and, you know, it gives her a chance to talk about like lots of different aspects of the word body and what it might mean. And, um, you know, if she hadn't come and asked that question, she felt it'd be silly to ask that question, she might not have learned. So yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of encouraging her to keep asking questions. Uh, I think that's a fantastic, fantastic question. It's got me thinking now about the definition of the word body. I think it's a really, <laughs> a really in- intelligent insight to think actually, you know, to understand the transition between what that, what you know, what a body means when you're referring to someone who's dead uh, yeah. and what it doesn't. <laughs> that's awesome. Fantastic stuff. So another question I'm really interested to ask you because you've got such an interesting background, you know, having done consultancy, uh, then your own, you know, working in a startup and now as a VC, you know, how do you frame work for your kids? And, you know, what sort of steer, you know, like, again, they're a little bit, a little bit young for this. What sort of steer will you give them when the time comes to work? You know, what work means to them? For me, the steer I would give them is go and work with people that you really enjoy spending time with. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you earn or, you know, whether you're you're achieving the goals that you set out for yourself when you were 18 or whatever. What really matters is, is enjoying your work. And a lot of that I've found more and more I derive from working with great people. And you know, in my job, actually, I, that comes twofold. So I'm allowed to be really positive about my own company. I think Alvin is a fantastic place to work and my colleagues are all brilliantly intelligent and I love spending time with them. But equally, I then get to spend an awful lot of time with ridiculously great founders who are just, you know, off the charts, intelligent and brilliant and in lots of ways. And, you know, that is something that motivates me every day to get up and do the job. And so I think I'd say to them, go and find people you want to work with and do something that you enjoy together. And you know, you'll you'll be happy. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's absolutely awesome advice. Uh, and I totally agree with you there. I think if you were to ask me, the number one motivator for me, uh, beyond you know, obviously the impact that we can make as we build a, a scaling business, is the people. You know, I think I'd be really sad to not get to spend a lot of my time with the people that I get to work with every day. Uh, you know, if I wasn't doing what I was doing, that would just be a huge hole in my life in multiple ways, actually. Uh, and I totally agree with you there. That's a, a fantastic piece of general purpose advice. And the converse is true. Don't hang around if you're not enjoying the people. The politics is painful. You don't feel that everyone around has got your back. Don't stick around. There are plenty of organisations where you can find that. And um, the toll on your your own 
well-being will be far too great to, to put up with that for any, to any length of time. <laughs> Fantastic advice, as you say, in both directions. So David, I'd like to ask you the question I ask every guest now, which is what's the biggest lesson you've learned from your journey in entrepreneurship that you want to pass on to your kids? Doing everything you do with integrity is massively important, like both for your own mental health, because you, if you don't, you'll soon be worrying about when you get caught out. And secondly, for the longevity of what you're doing. It's easy to make a quick, a quick win here at the expense of, you know, a bit of, a bit of underhand dealing. But you see, you know, the founder community, the startup community is a very small place. And I watch people do that and very quickly their careers unravel. And, you know, acting with integrity is just so important with every decision you make in a job because it allows you to, to rest properly at the end of the day because you know you've, you've acted properly. And I think in VC, particularly in my job, you know, I'm often dealing with people who've never done startups before. They've never, you know, you know, they've never done what a cap table is. They don't know what a liquidation preference is. You know, there's lots of opportunities to gain a little bit of extra here and you know, get an advantage here. But you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't enjoy my job if I wasn't doing that. And very quickly, I'd get found out. And integrity is a currency that you you can build up over your life, and people will know you for. And it will widen and broaden and deepen all of your network if you're known to act with integrity. And so I'd encourage them strongly, always think of the long term and act with the integrity that that requires rather than, you know, do the, the easiest, quickest thing for the for the near term. Yeah, I really, really like that. Uh, listen, I mean, he's well known in the startup world, Naval. He talks about playing long term games with long term people. That's what startups are about. And you want to therefore optimize for both of those things. And you can't do that without integrity. So I think that's fantastic advice. Well, David, that's been absolutely awesome. Before we wrap up, uh, we close the show with our regular feature, Startup Shoutouts, where we give uh, our guests an opportunity to shine a light on someone in the startup ecosystem uh, that they admire. Startup Shoutouts. So, David, who's your Startup Shoutout? So my startup shout out is actually Local Globe and particularly uh, Mish at Local Globe. And the reason is he has a couple of occasions I've seen him bring up sort of uh, founder mental health and other kind of really important issues that are only starting to be really adopted well by VCs. And I've learned a lot sitting alongside boards, looking at how he allows founders to kind of open up on those issues that I've taken away and used elsewhere. So great guy, big shout out to Mish. Um, I don't know. I've never told him that I've learned, learned from him in that, but I absolutely have. <laughs> that's amazing. I think that's also very high integrity to shout out uh, another VC because you're absolutely right. They, uh, you know, as you said, the right investors make a life changing difference to founders. And that's the sort of person that you want to play those long term games with. Brilliant. Well, David, that's been a fantastic episode. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. How can we find out a little bit more about you and Albion and what you're doing? Is there anything you want to tell us a little bit about before you go? You can come and visit the UCL Tech Fund website and see all the amazing startups that are creating out of UCL and, and the wider stuff we're doing at Albion. We're just in the, in the process of closing our second fund. Keep an eye on all the brilliant deep tech stuff that's coming out of out of the university. Um, and if, you, if there are any founders out there with connections to the university who want to come and talk to me, any academics listening to this who want to know how to, how to transition out of academia and entrepreneurship and how to get a good investor to help you do that, I would be very happy to give up time to, to talk you through that. Many thanks to today's guest. You'll find links to them and their work in the show notes. It would really help us if you shared the show with a friend or colleague. So if you know someone who might find this podcast valuable, please pass it on to them. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out on Twitter at StartupDadsPod. 